Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And our passage today is verses 18 to 31. 1 Corinthians 18, chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. And um, I want to give you a sermon entitled, Only Fools Go to Heaven. If I had been more thoughtful about it, I would have put the word fools in parentheses because it would look better. Only fools go to heaven, but um, you'll see what I mean. Now, let's make a prayer together, would you? Let's make a prayer together. Father, this is a... And every Christian church around the world that's observing the resurrection today, this is a big day for them. People come to be with their moms and dads and brothers and sisters. And maybe they don't go to church real regular, but in the spring of the year they try to reconnect. And Lord, so Easter is a, it's a special day, and I feel, I feel a lot of, of importance on the day. And I know me, and I know I am insufficient to the task. But I know that your holy word is sufficient. I know also, Father, that the Holy Spirit is able to do and always does do what is seemingly impossible. Lord, I do not know the need of every person in this room. You do. and it's Not every person in this room knows what their real need is either, Father. You know the hearts of all men all people. Lord, I offer this sermon to you as my act of worship, and I pray, Lord, that it will be pleasing and honorable to you. I pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. The church at Corinth was nestled in the midst of a city that was as progressive and as cosmopolitan as any city in America. The ancient world, while it was a primitive world compared to ours, the ancient world was not filled with foolish people. Even today, we are still enjoying the many, many advantages as a people collectively because we have taken the wisdom of the Greeks and of the ancient world and taken that wisdom and applied it in different and new ways. And we have been able to make the greatest civilizations that the world has ever known. So they were wise. And then what we have done is we've taken... What they gave us, we stand on their shoulders, you might say. Now, the upwards progress of man has made it so that people today who are the big brains of America, the intellectual giants of industry and study, these big brains of America are often people who are unbelievers. And they, they look at people who are Christians. And if you read anything about, read biographies of great people, You'll see that sometimes in their childhood, their grandma or grandpa or mom or dad drug them to church. And then when they went to college, they began to question and drift. When they got into graduate school, they realized, you know, I don't really need any of this religion stuff. Religion is not central to a good, happy, hopeful life. And sometimes they'll abandon the faith. But But they won't be hostile to it. They'll say that, you know, there, are, there is a certain category or class of people who really need religion. They need a crutch to lean on. And so they don't poo-poo it totally. They just see it as not being something that they really need. Only some people need a higher power. Only some people need to believe in God. Now this argument against Christianity that I've just tried to sum, summarize for you 
is very common. And it was common in Paul's day. And Paul addresses it here in his letter to the Corinthian church. A church full of brilliant, talented people. The church at Corinth. Now let's take a reading here. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 31. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Just so, if you wanna, just so you know. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring, thing, to, bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And we trust the Lord to add his blessing to the reading of his word. The first thing I want you to notice there in verse number 18 is that the word or the message of the cross is foolishness to the perishing. It seems unusual to read, read it that way. The Apostle Paul does nothing in this passage to dissuade us from the idea that the gospel that the word of the cross, that the message of the cross is foolish. He doesn't try to, he doesn't say it ain't foolish. He doesn't say that at all. In fact, he grabs that by the nap of the neck, you might say, and he lifts it up for all the world to see and says, it's the foolishness, the folly of what we preach that God has chosen. God has chosen to use a means, he's chosen to use a message that to the masses, of brilliant people is foolish. It's foolish. But the key is in verse 18 there. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Let me show you how this works in a sense if I can. How many of you don't care two licks about fishing? Get out. Now, if you really like to fish, say amen. Amen. What's the difference here? I've taken all my kids fishing periodically. They haven't all really fallen in love with it. 
And I take them, I take them to the same water I'm on, I give them the same pole that I got, give them the same bait that I got, and I'm having the time of my life beating that water to a froth. And they're right beside me, and they're not having any fun at all. What's the difference? I have felt that little bump, bump. And I felt the tug of a fish on my line. I've heard the drag go, I've felt it. I've, I've had it feel like you're pulling in a rock. But it's really a big old bass. I've, I've experienced it. So to one person, they say, ah, fishing is a waste of time. But I'm saying, oh, no. The worst day fishing is better than the best day working. That's what I'm saying. And to those who are perishing, those who are outside of Christ, those who have not been born again, those who have not tasted the heavenly gift, to those persons, the whole enchilada of religion and Christianity is just like a a taco shell full of sawdust. Why bother with that? But Paul says, To those who are perishing, this word of the cross is folly. What exactly is this word of the cross? The word of the cross is the message of the cross. It's the teaching of the gospel. The word of the cross is this. The word of the cross, the message of Christianity, is that Jesus Christ, the creator of all things, left the spirit realm and was made flesh. That he was born in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and that he grew from an embryonic state through all the the stages of growth, of development in his mother's womb, and then, after 40 or so weeks, he was born, just like every other person was born. And he was squeezed out into the atmosphere and breathed the air of his own creation. Then he was laid upon the breast of a woman who he designed and created and made. In the eternal decrees. He laid upon her breast and was nursed by her. And then he, the sovereign creator of all things, the Lord, the master of all, as a little baby wore a diaper and soiled himself, crawled in the dirt, crawled across the kitchen floor, learned to walk, took a tumble or two, Smacked his head on corners as he lived. He went through the the awkward stages of childhood. Growing, getting bigger. Everybody in the family saying, haven't you grown? Every old lady saying, aren't you handsome? Look at those cheeks. Through all those stages and then puberty. The great change. Stuff sprouting out where nothing was before. Voice changing. The squeaking, the cracking. There, we have a video, I'm not sure if, if we own it or my parents own it. It's of me when I was about 14 years of age. And I'm at the apex of my hick voice. My, my accent was high and drawly. And we were looking over a precipice in Arizona. And I said, that's a lot of pain. (laughs) My voice squeaks and cracks as I go up. And as I look back on those things now, I'm like, oh, man, let's just delete that. 
Jesus Christ our Lord going through all those phases of life, living through everything that we face, in all points tempted to sin like we are, yet without sin. This is the Christ. And this Jesus came from the eternal realm into our realm and lived a life without sin. He never sinned in thought. He never sinned in word. He never sinned in deed. And he lived his whole life that way until he was 30 years of age. When he was 30 years of age, he went down to the Jordan River and encountered John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist, who was an anointed prophet, when John saw him, when John viewed him, John declared, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's John 1.29. And Jesus comes to him, and John says, I need you to baptize me, because John was baptizing people. And Jesus says, suffer to, be, suffer, suffer to be now to fulfill all righteousness. And John the Baptist baptizes Jesus in the, Georgian river, in, the Georgian, in the Jordan River. And when Jesus comes up out of that water, the Spirit of God descends like a dove upon him. And in that moment, probably the first time in creation history, you have this manifestation of the Trinity. You have the Son, you have the Spirit, and then you have the voice of the Father from heaven that says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And from that day forward, Jesus begins a three or so year ministry of teaching, healing, and demonstrating that He is the Son of God. And then... He went to the cross, and on the cross, the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21, that God the Father made him the Son to be sin for us who knew no sin. God made the innocent Jesus to be sin. And then God treated Jesus, just like he was a sinner, and he crushed him. He crushed him in his divine wrath. God the Father poured out justice and wrath upon Jesus Christ on the cross. And there, Jesus Christ, he's the suffering Savior. He's the Lamb of God. He's the sin bearer. He's the scapegoat. He gets all the blame for all the sin of everyone who would believe on him. And he's crushed. Charles Spurgeon says that the earthquake that took place after Jesus said, it is finished. The Bible says the earth quaked. Spurgeon says the reason the earthquake quaked after Jesus said it was finished is because until Jesus said enough, he was the object of all the object of the energy of God's wrath. But when Jesus said it is finished and gave up his spirit, that that energy transferred from Christ and smacked the earth, boom, giving it a giving it, giving it a cataclysmic wallop that we're still feeling the repercussions of today. This is the word of the cross. And when Jesus said it was finished, he was dead. His soul 
went into the heart of the earth. What exactly that means, I do not know. I know he went into Sheol, the realm of departed spirits. I don't know if Jesus' soul faced the fiery torments of hell. I don't know if he did or not. Whatever it took to pay the full price for sin, I want you to know Jesus paid the full price. If it required just going into Sheol and Hades to the subterranean realms, if that's all it required, he did it. If it required him to go into hell itself and be sizzled some, then he did that. Whatever was required to pay the sin debt, Jesus paid it. And on the third day, a Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. And he rose again for our justification because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof of purchase that sins were paid for. Jesus rose to show that sins had been totally paid for. That's the word of the cross. Now, I was trying to look at everybody while I was talking. Hard to do. But I figure that some of you, in your heart of heart, are thinking, hallelujah, thank God for that. Some of you are thinking, I don't know if I've ever really heard it that way before. Others of you are probably thinking, you know, I've heard this and I am getting hungry. I got places to be, things to do. Some of you may be in your heart of hearts. You ever pour salt on a slug? Or am I the only weirdo? <laughs> Pour salt on a slug, that thing just... That's what it's like for you. Not on the outside, but on the inside. Because it's just, you're like, I just don't... It's foolishness. It's just silly. Well, that's the message of the cross. And this message, the apostle says... This is what the word of God says. This word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. To those who are in a status of unbelief. Those who are dying, to them, they are perishing. Now sometimes we we make an effort to try to explain this. To try to prove that Jesus rose from the dead. We can explain this to you. We can explain it to you over and over. We can point to evidences that no, most people would accept, like this one. 1 Corinthians 15, 6. The Apostle Paul writing 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul writes and he says that Jesus was seen after his resurrection by 500 people at one time. How many people? 500. If, if you were on trial for doing something... And I had 500 people walk in and testify they saw you would do it. What do you think the jury is going to say? You probably did it. 500 people. The Apostle Paul says, the greater number of which are still with us now. Now, I doubt that 500 people ever saw Augustus Caesar at one time. I doubt that 500 people saw some of the famous characters of history at one time together. How many of you believe King Arthur existed? I see. That, that, that. I'm with you, Johan. 
Some people say he didn't exist. But a lot of people say he does. What about Robin Hood? Have you seen the old Robin Hood movie with Kevin Costner? Robin of Loxley. (laughs) These people are recognizable characters from history. Did you know there was a time when the emperor of the Japanese empire, though he lived and existed, he was only seen by maybe a dozen people in his whole life? Yet the people offered him the deepest reverence and respect. And here we have Jesus Christ, who in his resurrection was seen by 500 people. Most people would accept that. But some people hear something like that and they say, you know, I don't believe it. Got a picture? Got some video? You can explain things and prove things to people sometimes, and they just will not believe. And the reason for that is not because they're hard-headed, not because they're a knucklehead, not because they're stupid, not because they're biased. It's just because they are perishing, which means they are spiritually dead to God. They can't discern the truth of the gospel. Now, I wouldn't normally say what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it because I think it's worth saying in this moment. The church that Valerie grew up in in Arkansas, they just, they had, they've had a mortgage on their building for a long time. They have trouble, they've been having lots of money problems for about 15 years, and they owe 1.5 million bucks. What's the number? 1.5 million bucks. Well, a few weeks ago, they took up an offering, and they took up like $40,000 to try to pay down some principal and get ahead. Now, we, we just paid off a million-dollar loan, so we know, we know the burden and responsibility of that, right? But thanks be to God, through his mercies to us, we didn't really get behind or have any difficulties. Sometimes we buckled the belt and made some, made, made some, man, <laughs> we trimmed to make everything work. And praise be to God, we got it paid off, amen? And our meeting in a couple of weeks is not because the church is in bad shape financially, okay? It's just we have to have quarterly meetings to update people on stuff. So don't start thinking, what are they doing with all the money? Well, that's where my boat came from. <laughs> <laughs> No. So they they gave they gave this 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 money to the bank, and then they were praying that the Lord would pay off their loan. And just this week, I follow them on, on YouTube because that's the church I was ordained at, went to college, etc. I don't agree with them on a lot of things theologically anymore, but there's still a lot of my friends and people go there. Valerie's mom goes there. I'm interested in what's going on there. So I'm nosy. And all of a sudden, they say we're having a service Friday night. Now, here's what Baptists don't do usually. Baptists don't do different. We do the same. We don't really make change. And to me, when he, when he said we're having a meeting Friday night, to me, it was unprecedented. An unpre- assembling the church on a Friday night, it's unprecedented to me. You always wait till Sunday. It's just the way it is. You don't meet on other days. It's Sunday or Wednesday or nothing. Right? <laughs> Can a brother get a witness? I mean, come on. So the pastor, he comes out and says, you know, we've been praying, Lord, we'll pay off our, pay off our mortgage, mortgage. And he said, before the service Wednesday night, I opened the mail, a letter from FedEx. He opened the mail, and inside of it was a check for 1.5 million bucks from somebody they never met. 
from a place in Georgia. He said, my first thought was, this is fake. You ever got a check in the mail? And went, oh, I won. But it's, a, it's fake. He, he wants to know, is it fake? Well, by Friday, they find out it's real. It's legit. So on Friday, they paid off their mortgage. $1.5 million. Now look, here's what, here's what I'm going to say about that. That is a magnificent answer to prayer. They had the need. They prayed. God met the need through an unusual source. That's impressive, isn't it? But you could take that, we could put, we could put that same story on the news tonight. And people still will not become Christians because of that news. You can't prove people into the kingdom of God. They're perishing. To those who are perishing, it's all stupid. To those who are perishing, it's folly. They're in a status of disbelief. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that unbelief is a power. It's a power that enslaves us and keeps us there. They won't believe because they're spiritually dead. They can hear the gospel. They can hear the message, but they can't discern it and believe it because they're perishing. They laugh because they just don't understand. Just as people laughed at great works in history. They laughed at the Wright brothers. They laughed at Edison. They laughed at Alexander Graham Bell. And worst of all, they laughed at Steve Jobs. When he said, I'm going to put your cell phone and your iPod and your laptop computer in one item that you can carry in your pocket. What madness is this? What madness? Now we got... The other day I was, I was in my bedroom, Patty, when you called the other day, and I thought, Patty's calling me. I didn't know I hit... I didn't know I answered. And I was... And, and then I realized, oh, I did answer. I thought, well, I'm glad I didn't say anything snappy. <laughs> or curse. Or, <laughs> or, or course. But I can talk... I talked to Patty from my wrist. What's up, Patty? Yeah. Mike Ekins was on the roof here at the church recently, or last summer. Him and Jeff Cooper, remember this, Jeff? You guys knocked the ladder down. They were up there dancing and singing, you know, and really making a scene, and they knocked the ladder down. <laughs> and Mike had no phone, but he had his watch. And he, call, and he called the church on his watch. People will laugh at that 50 years ago. But it became reality, didn't it? People laugh at stuff all the time. That is possible. So the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Look at the second half of that verse. But to those who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. To people who are being saved, to people who have experience the new birth, who've been called to life, who have been born again, who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, and who have the Holy Spirit within them, to those persons, the word of the cross is powerful, joyful, it is delicious to think about. To those who know the Lord, 
to those who are being saved, not to those who, we're not perishing anymore because when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we received new life, abundant life, everlasting life, and to us, the word of the cross is the greatest thing we ever heard. And we're so nuts about it is we want to go hear it all the time. We'll make our way to Sunday, week after week, to go to church. We'll go to small groups. We'll read books about it. We'll listen on the radio. We are just nuts about this word of the cross because we're being saved. We're being delivered. We're being made whole. We're being restored. We're being made new. We are being brought into deeper and deeper fellowship with God. Every person who's really been born again knows that something significant happened to them in that moment. Everybody who's been really born again knows it. Something massive has happened to me. I know it. And everybody I know who's a believer knows it. As I look around this room, there are a lot of different kinds of people with different kinds of backstories. And, but everybody who comes to faith in Christ has this cataclysmic moment where they pass from death unto life, where they change teams from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And they're made new. And they know it. They can't always articulate it that well. They can't explain it super good. But they know something big has happened. Now, the very fact that I'm here, I hate to, I hate to bring this up again, but the very fact that I'm here today is testimony to the, to the atomic-level bomb that went off in my life and the Lord saved me. Because when I was 15 years old, the idea of being a preacher, if you said, hey, you're going to be a preacher one day, I probably would have punched you in the eye and keyed your car and shot your dog. Because the whole thing was madness to me. I sit on the front row right here with my dad flapping his jaws week after week, enduring just as I am week after week, just as I am with that. Just thinking, just thinking, oh. I can remember seeing people respond in the invitation and it really ticked me off because I knew it was going to make church go longer. Stay in the pew and go to hell. I just want to get out of here. But my friends, August 22nd, 1993, world-changing for me. I walked in there not giving a flying rip. But I walked out of there born again, and with embryonic love in my heart for Jesus Christ. Embryonic love. And that love for Jesus Christ has only grown as the years have gone by. I love him more now than anything else. I love his gospel more than anything else. It is the old, old story that I love to hear. It is the greatest news I've ever heard. Sometimes I'm so conflicted as a pastor because there's so many things I feel like i got to talk about, but all I want to talk about is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said, I desire to know nothing else among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
It's a glorious truth. To those who are being saved, to those who the bomb has gone off in the heart, to those who've received the faith, to those who've had their blind eyes opened, this is the power of God. It's the power of God. This word of the cross is so powerful and so magnificent to us because it has caused the light to come on in our dark worlds. It's a light that's so bright that it reminds us and informs us that even when our life is dark and dreary, Christ is our great possession, and we cannot lose Him. And He will not lose us. We are in His hands. The Apostle Paul, he writes about the kind of people that God will save, because sometimes people think, well, only certain kinds of people can get saved. I want you to listen to what Paul says in this letter to the Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 5 Six nine through eleven. Listen, listen to the reading. Now he's, he's going to take the negative tact here. He's going to say that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says these people are not going to go to heaven. But then the best part is the next verse. And such were some of you. That church at Corinth was made up of people who were thieves. Greedy, drunkards, fornicators, homosexuals. That church was made up of a a, a massive composite of sinful behavior. And Paul says, that's what you were. Listen to the reading. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, my friends, sinners can be cleansed and washed and made holy and righteous in the eyes of God through Jesus Christ. So no matter what kind of sins are in your past or in your present, if you come to Jesus, he'll wash them all away. Like they never existed at all. That's what justification means. Just as if I'd never been a sinner at all. You remember on the cross, God treated Jesus like he was a sinner, right? And crushed him. But through faith in Jesus Christ and justification, God treats you like you've never been a sinner. And he gives you eternal, everlasting, unending, glorious, abundant life through Christ. And when the end of the world finally comes, when Jesus returns, you are going to be a citizen of the heavenly realm. God already now thinks of you and treats you like one of his sons and one of his daughters. You are his through faith in Jesus Christ. And those of you who have been born again and know that, you know you're happy. And those of you who don't believe it, it's just folly. It's just folly. Look at their reading here. Why, why must it be thus? Verses 23-25. This great word of the cross, it cannot be expressed in satisfactory terms. 
What I have said to you, believe it or not, is sufficient to save everybody. You don't, you don't, have, you don't have, to have a PhD in Christian apologetics to do this kind of thing. Something is going on here. The Apostle Paul says the Jews, they seek after signs. The Jews, when Jesus came, Jesus came doing miracles. When all the prophets of the Old Testament would come, they would come doing miracles because the Jews, they said, oh yeah, if you're really all that in a bag of chips, do a miracle for us. Moses comes and does a miracle. Elijah comes and does a miracle. Elisha comes and does a miracle. Jesus comes, and what's Jesus do? Well, he does a miracle. His very first miracle, God is where we all live. He went to a wedding. They ran out of wine. He turned water into wine, made everybody happy. And then Jesus does miracle after miracle after miracle, saying, I am the Son of God. And then, when they killed him on the cross, he rose again on the third day. That's a huge sign. I am the one. And what did the Jews do? When Jesus rose from the dead, did did the Jewish people all run to him and say, you're the one, you're the one? No. Greeks, Gentiles, they want the reasons. They want to know the theories. They want, they want to think about how it could be possible. They want you to talk them into the kingdom of God. They say, if you could just convince me. Now look, my dad had this little maxim. He who is, he who is convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. How many of you are real stubborn? Let me ask this question differently. How many of you wives are married to a stubborn man? <laughs> and no amount of talking that you can do will change his mind. You can show him a picture. You can show him a text he sent you. <laughs> He'll still say, dang Siri. <laughs> The Jews want a sign. The Greeks want reason. But neither of these are going to cut it. Because it can't be done through natural means. It's a supernatural thing. It's supernatural. Listen to the reading here. Verse 21. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and they follow it to Gentiles. There is no way to improve upon Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ. And if you can take Christianity and make it seem where it's no longer a foolish thing to, be, to believe to the Jews or to the rational-minded, if you, if, you if you can make it logical and sensible, then what you've done is you've lost the gospel. It's a folly to those who are perishing. To some of you, it's silly right in this moment. But for some of you, you're going to stop calling it silly because I think God is going to save you. Listen to verses 26 through 31. Now Paul, he's going to talk to the Christians at Corinth. Here's what he's going to say to them. Consider your calling, brethren, He says, I want you guys to think about what you really are. 
If you came to faith because you're wise, if you think it's because you're wise, Paul says not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. I just... I started to say, I'm sorry to get on a pet peeve of mine, but I'm not going to do it. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of noble birth. But if you are saved, look what the text says. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God has saved us in a way that eliminates any kind of boasting whatsoever. I think this text is interesting because it almost reads like if you're saved, it's because you're crippled too high for crutches. Let that sink in. <laughs> it's because you're a brick shy of a load. Your elevator doesn't go to the top floor. It's what it looks like. He's saying whatever seems sensible, God does the opposite of it. You may say, well, I think I'm pretty smart. Well, that's not why God saved you. That's not how you got saved. These things are spiritually discerned. And God has done it this way so nobody could boast in the presence of God. Salvation is the free and sovereign eternal gift of God. It's from God to you. It's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't merit it. If there's anything that I've learned as a Christian, it's that I didn't deserve to be saved when I was saved when I was 15, and I don't deserve to have been kept saved all these years either. Because I got saved when I was 15. I'm now 45. Not quite 45, but about to be 45. That means that I spent more of my life a Christian than I spent as a non-Christian. And I'm going to tell you something about this last 30 years of being a Christian. There hasn't been a day or an hour free from sin on my part. I am a sinful person. When somebody does me wrong, I'm vindictive. When somebody does a favor for me, I think, why are they doing that? What's their motive? What's going on here? When I see things on the internet that I should pass on by, I want to stop and take another look. My, I am a sinner. And I don't deserve to stay saved. But God... That's not how it works. I'm not saved. I'm not, I'm not kept saved by my good works. I'm not kept saved by good performance. I'm not kept saved by getting, a, by getting at least a D on my spiritual report card. You're, when you put your faith in Christ, you're justified once and forever. Once and forever through Jesus Christ. Just look at this reading again. Nobody can boast. And because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. Not because of you, because of him 
of God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus because of him. Why is it that you have been able to hear the gospel when multitudes around the world have not been able to hear the gospel? Why is it? Who fixed it up so you'd be born here? Who has worked out all things in the eternal purposes of God? Who has worked these things out so you could be here today to hear the gospel another time? How is it that you wound up here with me? God is at working. God is working to bring you into fellowship with him. And my friends, when you come to know God as your Savior, it's because he has been working your whole life and from all of eternity to bring you to himself because he's loved you before you ever were. He loved me ere I knew him. He's loved you. And it's because of him you're in Christ. Not because of you. Because of him and his working. Why, why, do, see, why, why does the Bible got to say things like this? So we can appropriately worship God. So we will be humble before him and love him because of what he has done for us. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast only in the Lord. He's done this so we could only boast in him. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, he says, it's by the grace of God I am that I am. The Apostle Paul only Paul, now this, this, is, this is my own estimation, okay? Don't take this, don't take this too, too far. Jesus comes and does magnificent miracles. If anybody came close to doing what Jesus did, it was Paul. Read the life of Paul, you'll be blown away by what he's gone through. And Paul says, it's only by the grace of God that I am what I am. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, his creation in Christ Jesus. He has done the work. Now, this is a fascinating. Listen to, listen to what this says in Jeremiah. Now, I realize that I need to stop, but you guys look so happy, I'm just going to keep going. So don't fake it. <laughs> Jeremiah 9, 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. God wants you to make your boast in him. He has loved me. He has saved me. Titus 3, 5, and 6 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us, through the washing and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now here's the end of the sermon. Here's the questions for you. 
Do you know him? Is the preaching of the cross, is the word of the cross the power of God to you or is it folly to you? Now maybe in the midst of this sermon you've come to realize that you're not a Christian. You've never really put your faith in Christ. You can do it now. I'm going to read this little sample bit of prayer here. And if you made this prayer your very own while I'm reading it, the Bible says if you call on him, he'll save you. You know, and, 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 you know, sometimes people say, you don't have to say things like this, but you know what? People don't always know how to talk to God because they've never done it before. And I tell the teenagers all the time on Wednesday nights that you can talk to God like he's a real person. Just talk to him. But that's kind of hard to get your brain around. But if you want to talk to God and ask him to save you, here's what you could say. Lord Jesus, save me. Wash me. Make me yours. I believe you're the Son of God and you rose from the dead. That's what the Bible says. You can confess those things and you can be saved. I know, it's, I know it seems ludicrous to you. That's because you're still thinking wrong. He will save you. Whoever calls upon him will save. Now don't put it off. Don't put off coming to Christ. Don't put off calling upon him. Now, I went to church a long time. And I put off asking the Lord to save me. And I put it off and put it off and put it off and put it off. And I put it off until one day I went to church and got saved. But you, you, you don't have to call on Christ here. Now, if you're here and you're saved, say amen. amen. Now, if you got saved, if you call on Christ to save you outside of church, would you put your hand up? Would you mind doing that? Now, everybody look around. These are people who got saved outside of church. You can put your hands down. So it doesn't have to happen here. It can happen at your work. It can happen in the cab of a truck. It can happen in a deer blind. It can happen in a jail cell. It can happen in the back of a police car. It can happen in a hotel room. It can happen anywhere. Call upon Christ and he'll save you. Now, brothers and sisters who are Christians who have been saved by grace, isn't it great? Isn't it great to know him? Praise God for his unspeakable gift. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that these, these words of this sermon will be pleasing to you, and I pray that you would save, that you would save sinners, Lord, that they will come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I pray, Father, that for some of these wonderful people that you'll reach down from heaven. Get a hold of their heart, Lord, and they'll know it's you, you who have come after them. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.